Hello everyone, that Weems guy here. I was not able to record a new episode this week due to work schedule. However, the early days of the that Weems guy show were all done on YouTube, and when I uploaded the audio from the YouTube episodes, I somehow erroneously uploaded one of the Carl Wren episodes twice, and did never uploaded the audio from one of his other appearances. So you will have a new episode for the podcast feed this week that's not previously played on it. So this is Carl Wren from KR Training discussing building a training business. And hopefully we'll be back with all new content for YouTube and the podcast feed next week. Hello everyone, I am That Weems Guy here for First Person Safety. Uh, this will be the first of a two-part interview with Carl Wren of KR Training out of Texas. Uh, Carl has a very unique background uh, that will become readily apparent to you as we begin uh, with both of these segments. But first, let me let Carl have a moment to introduce himself. Carl? Oh, my. Well, the quick answer is I've been doing firearms training and running my own training business for 30 years. We just celebrated our 30th anniversary back in May. And uh, I've done some other things, but uh, just to keep the inter- introduction brief, let's, I've got about 3,000 hours of training from about 80 different trainers and uh, USPSA Grandmaster and, uh, you know, Chief Lawnmower and Toilet Scrubber at the A-Zone Range, which is my training facility where I teach classes and I host classes and occasionally get to practice. Now, you're kind of modest with that Grandmaster. That's multiple divisions in Grandmaster. Yeah, well, I'm going to... I'm going to throw some more modesty on there. USPSA recently changed the standards for Grandmaster and they raised the standards by five to 10%. And so I'm glad that I promoted when I did uh, because it's <laughs> become harder in the last couple of years to move up and uh, boy, they've made the hill high to climb. Well, good. That's probably a good thing though. Uh, it is, except now that I'm stuck in Grandmaster class against people that actually are making Grandmaster under the new standards. So they're incredibly good. Uh, so, you know, right now I would say my skill is probably honestly master level and not new GM level. It's like old Coke and new Coke, you know, uh, grandfathered in under the old standards. All right, Carl, you also had a very uh, distinguished career in instructional like from the Texas A&M side of research oriented, right? Yeah, I, I did. I did 20 years, 20 plus years doing scientific research. And that sort of transitioned over uh, when my wife got a faculty job with Texas A&M, I ended up working for Teeks, the Texas Engineering Extension Service, and I managed a team of nine full-time and 22 part-time instructors doing training for DHS. So I spent about nine years writing curriculum, evaluating instructors, training instructors, going to classes on learning to be better at all those things. So I got roughly the equivalent of another master's degree in education on the classes that they sent me to, and I did that work doing nothing but education, training, and curriculum full-time for uh, A&M, which was funded by DHS, a national program on critical infrastructure development. So yeah, I did a lot of that. And the other thing is just along the way, I've built my own training team at KR Training. We've got about a dozen instructors now that are part-timers that assist me with classes. And that has also been a project to figure out how do we develop those people and what standards do I train them to and what do I expect from them and what do they need to know and uh, how do they work best on class day. All right. Tell everyone where KR training is located. Uh, quick answer is we are one hour from Austin, one hour from College Station, two hours from Houston, San Antonio, and Waco. And so we're convenient to none, but central to all in the middle of Texas. 
Uh, it's a very nice facility. I've had the pleasure of being there on a number of occasions. And so if you're looking for, for good training, and you know, Austin, he's on the same side of Austin that the airport's on. So you can fly in, uh, you can run it, you can stop and get some good barbecue on the way out to Carroll Training and get some good training from either Carl or some of the people that he's got there in town. Well, thank you. Yeah, all right. Um, I have a background, for, the, for those of you that are unaware, uh, I have a master's degree in public administration from the University of Georgia. A uh, number of my elective classes were in what we call organizational development, and that is a lot of it has to do with managing a workforce and trying to motivate and get the most productivity you can out of employees. And I, I'm familiar with Maslow's hierarchy of needs from that standpoint of how it relates to a workforce. I believe it was the 2017 tactical, tactical conference Carl presented beyond the 1%. And it was a, uh, a presentation on how to grow a firearms business. And I walked in and I'm sitting in and sitting down in the tent there. And early on in the presentation, up pops this triangle that I'm very familiar with. <laughs> and it is Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And as soon as I saw it pop up on the screen, I'm like, I know exactly where this is going. And it makes so much sense. But I had never put it, thought of the, the hierarchy of needs in that context. So as Carl is explaining the hierarchy of needs and the beyond the 1%, I will occasionally be throwing the, the triangle up on the screen so that viewers can see it and we'll have something to relate to. And so at this point, Carl explained to them beyond the 1%. Well, how this, the, this lecture came about was uh, something that we've done that's very different than most schools do, or it was different when we started doing it. Honestly, there's quite a few schools now that are copying our approach, and I'm very honored that they've, uh, that they've seen the value in it. Uh, what I figured out very simply, it was one of my assistant instructors, actually, that uh, pointed out to me. He said, you know, there's a lot more people with four hours and $100 that are willing to come to training than there are with 16 hours and $500 or $400 that'll come out for a weekend. And it doesn't really matter who it is. It's not the, it's not the individual that's going to change whether they're motivated to come out or not. It's that they don't have the money and the time, their level of motivation to train. They have it, but they don't have it to the level that they can give up an entire weekend. And that was really an eye-opening moment. I think for us in, in our business that I realized, you know, instead of trying to offer 16 hour classes or eight hour classes to completely restructure what we were doing in the scope of four hour blocks, generally priced about hundred to $125 a piece that used fewer rounds and were in bite sizes. But by the same token, we set up a structure of classes where if you take enough of the classes, you've taken the equivalent of the same kind of training you would get from say the classic Gunsight 250 or a Thunder Ranch Defensive One or any of the programs that have a 32 to 40 hour, you know, week long handgun course. And so we created a way for people that had kids and jobs and other interests and a life and, and a budget to still get that kind of training, but they did it at the local level. And where that came from, really, when we started looking at the numbers was to realize that out of, at the, at the time we looked at it, there was about a million carry permit holders in Texas. And if you added up all the numbers of people with all the training schools that I knew of at the time and their estimated student volumes, and or some cases they gave me their student volumes, right? But then you looked at how many USPSA members, how, to be, how many IDPA members, all that sort of thing. Uh, you look at participation beyond the state minimum. I discovered that sadly, it was about 
1% or slightly less of those 1 million permit holders in a given year did anything beyond the state minimum. And so, you know, I realized, look, if I can just move the needle one or 2% to get some of those people to come to my four hour classes, that became a really viable business model for keeping classes full and, and keeping the pipeline going, right? You have to offer the sequence. So once they get on the merry-go-round, you know, they don't get off. They stay on until they ride it all the way. Well, more like a roller coaster, perhaps, because they're going to ride it all the way to the end once they get on. Uh, that by structuring it so there was a challenge coin and this, you know, master certificate at the end, then it was okay. I've started this program. Well, I only need two or three more classes to finish up. Or I, gee, this looks interesting. I'll go do this and do this. Oh, look, now I'm only one or two classes from being finished. Uh, so we got a lot of repeat business and people returning for higher level classes that we wouldn't get just by offering a random selection of short courses when we gave it a structure and said, here's a sequence and you have to do all these things and meet all these standards. Uh, it's really helped. We've, uh, you know, it's become a, a, a quite an attractive process. We get a lot of people to come out. And then when the ammo drought hit, uh, being able to offer people, hey, you know, you got 100 rounds, come out for class, right? We never got down to 50 round classes, but we, we cut a lot of things that had been 150 or 200 round classes down to 100 rounds, and we're able to keep the program going. And so again, We've seen people cancel out of classes that were thousand round two day classes, but our four hour classes continue to sell. Yeah, I, I saw that locally here. Uh, I ran a number of 50 round three hour workshops uh, throughout the ammo drop. And that's what kept my business going locally. It's because people can find 50 rounds to come to a class. Right. We'd let them shoot at 22. We didn't care what, bring any gun you can find, you know, didn't matter. Because uh, you know, bring your bring the gun that you carry, and if nothing else, you'll dry fire that, and then switch to your 22 for the live fire drills. But you know, come on out and get some work. We you know increase the number of force on force classes that we were doing, more red gun work, uh, lecture, medical, pepper spray. We got a lot of different things in our program, so you know we also increase the frequency of those things. So we could say, because some of the classes in our program are force on force. Some of them are red gun tactical courses. So we offered a lot of those. And so, yeah, if you only got hundred rounds, come out for this thing in the morning, stick around for the other one in the afternoon, you knock out two more classes in the program. All right. Um, now I'm going to throw the hierarchy of needs up here on the screen real quick. All right. And at the bottom of the triangle there, we have this, the psychological and safety, excuse me, physiological and safety needs. And Maslow paired these together both as, say, basic needs. Now, when I look at the triangle and I know from your presentation, that's basically the state level license to carry course that is required of a number of states. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, it's, I'm going to come off as very cynical in this next answer. But in terms of people checking the box psychologically, yes, right? They, they go to class, they get their carry permit, and then often, you know, many of them don't actually carry. Uh, some of them don't even have a loaded gun accessible in their own home, or they poorly store a loaded gun in their vehicle where it can be stolen. And they, but in their mind, that checks the box for safety and security that, oh, I've got the gun in my car. I don't have it with me right now, but I've got it in the car. And if I need it, I can go get it or they think they can go get it. Um, so there's a lot of people that, you know, the 99%. Yeah, that's where they're at. I can check the box now. I took one class. 
I shot 50 rounds. I met a state standard so low I could pass it blindfolded, but that means I'm good to go and I don't ever need to do anything else. Right. Those are the people that look at that one class as that's all they'll ever need. Yeah. And many of them, uh, like we just passed constitutional carry. Many of them are like, well, I didn't really need that class at all, but the state made me take it. So I took it, you know, and um, the many of the licensed carry instructors in Texas are panicked because if the only program they ever offered people was the state mandated class, uh, many of them are looking at precipitous drops in business as the average person I think the average permit, well, permit holder now would, would have been a gun carrier. You know, they're just like, well, I don't need that class. They may still want other classes, but they're not. I think the demand for the state class really is going to plummet considerably now that it's not required just to carry in the state or to have a gun inside your vehicle. Right. So the people that are taking that class, they're only there because basically the state told them they had to be there if they wanted yeah. to carry or, yeah, I get some some business where a parent buys their adult child who's just moved out of the house. They buy them a firearm and say, but I won't let you have this firearm if you take a basic safety class. Yes. And so that student is there basically for the same reason. They're only there because somebody's making them to be there. They're not there because they chose necessarily to become a trained firearms person. Right. But some of that next level of people do come back because once they've done the state carry permit class, they realize enough to know that they don't know what they need to know. And so they do come back. The safety and security needs do drive in many cases, their desire to come back and take additional classes because they want the confidence to know that they can carry concealed in public. There are people that actually do get the carry permit with full intention of carrying in public all the time. And they get through the state course and they go, well, that doesn't seem like everything I need to know. And we say, nope, it's not. Here's the next class in the sequence. And then we teach you how to use a holster and draw from concealment and shoot at a realistic pace and with more practical accuracy and all that. And they go, well, yeah, that's what I thought the state class was going to be. And we're like, yeah, sorry about that. State class is what it is, but uh, it opens the door to the next thing. So, you know, come on down for the next four hour, hundred dollar class. And uh, often we'll run the state class and that entry level class back to back on the same day, which uh, gets a lot of people to stick around. Yeah, years ago, I attended a basic 40 hour medical class that was part of a certification process here in Georgia. And some of it was good. Some of it was kind of weak and a nod. We know you're just here to get a get a certification. And I graduated that class on Friday. And on Tuesday, on my way home from work of the following week, a medical call of someone in cardiac arrest went out, and I was a half a mile from the scene and was the first person on the scene of an actual honest-to-goodness cardiac arrest. And on Wednesday morning, I went to the fire chief's office, and I'm like, okay, I need a real class. So, yeah, I I saw the need that, uh, yeah, I checked the box. And got my permit. Now I need to actually know how to do this and enrolled in an 80 hour class that had 10 follow on practicals riding in the ambulance after that. Oh, that's, um, good. that's good. Yeah. It's, say, say chief. Well, that's not the kind of arrest I'm used to dealing with. So, you know, right. I couldn't just put <laughs> handcuffs on that. That's right. Uh, and I actually, it was one of the few, few cardiac saves I've ever seen. Now, I didn't save her. <laughs> she's, she's, she lived because she decided she was going to live, hey, but, uh, you know, but it's, you know, 
I was there meeting a standard and all of a sudden I realized I had met the standard and the skills and, and training that I had were not enough and yeah. I needed to seek something else. Um, so let's move on to the, the next level is the psychological needs. And that's those people that come back beyond that minimum level of required training or if you're in Texas now and it's not a requirement or Tennessee, I know just went to a constitutional carry, I believe South Carolina uh, either did that or is in the process of doing that. And so all of these state mandated students aren't going to be there for businesses anymore unless people want a permit to carry out of state. Um, now you're going to have to have a product that attracts the people who are becoming because of the other needs. So what are the psychological needs and how did you relate that to firearms training? Well, years ago, when I got started in, in shooting, I'll be totally honest, I was a gamer. I was a USPSA shooter. I wasn't that interested in carrying. It wasn't personal defense was not my primary entry point into the, the world of shooting. It was, I like shooting guns and this shooting guns and running around going fast. This looks like fun, right? And once I started shooting competition, I made friends. And so I enjoyed going to the range and shooting guns. And I enjoyed hanging out with people that like to go fast and shoot guns. And I enjoyed competing against other people, right? And so doing well on match day or simply just shooting well became a pleasure-seeking thing of its own. And you see that with people that come back from multiple classes. And that's one reason why we had success with the 40-hour coin program was there's some personality types that will look at that and go, well, yeah, regular people have carry permits, but I'm going to do this other thing, which is way better. And there's a certain degree, it gives them confidence, which is safety and security, but it also gives them the sense of accomplishment, the satisfaction to say, look, I've, I've gone to this higher level. I can now do this, right? I can shoot IDPA expert, or I can shoot USPSA B class, or I can pass the FBI agent qual course, whatever. Uh, having those milestones, there's a lot of people in the training uh, community, people that are regular consumers of training. They're all about more and more challenging standards and gee, can I get this? Can I get to this level? Can I get to the next level? I totally get that. I am one of those people. Uh, but there's also people that simply like to go to the range with their friends and shoot guns. And it's more fun for them to go to the range and take a class where we're going through a shoot house or they're shooting steel targets or we're doing a you know man-on-man shoot off with falling steel or things like that but they can't go down to the indoor range like stand in one spot shoot a target oh you're shooting too fast you can't draw from a holster that's not fun right so uh, we we try to make sure that part of the marketing of the classes is hey this is fun come out and do this because you're going to enjoy it because it's you come come with your friends sometimes when things get slow we'll do a friend bring a friend deal right two registrations for the for a discount price so it's like you know 75 percent cost for each one so it's either you can pay full price or if you bring a friend you both get in for 75 percent things like that and we get regular students that you know they see each other frequently they come to classes and they they make friends and they make shooting buddies from coming to the classes right they see people uh, over and over again and that becomes a community in and of itself. Uh-huh. And so, you know, there's all of those things that happen that become, you know, shooting becomes a hobby or it becomes more of a higher goal. Uh, we also invite students to come back and take refresher classes. We give them half price slots. I learned that from Masad Ayub, actually, uh, half price slots for refresher students. And that encourages people to come back and you can fill empty slots in what would be a small class 
with people coming back for half price to run the drills again, just because it was fun and they can't practice those drills anywhere else. So, you know, we tried to, the, the fun aspect of it and the social aspect of it is a thing. And we, we try to promote that and encourage that. And uh, I think it works. Like I said, I've got quite a few students that take multiple classes a year. They've already got their challenge coin and they're just like, well, I like that class. I'll go take that again. Or, hey, I got a new gun. I'm going to come take this class with my new gun to see if I can do better on the test in the class with that gun than I did last time. Yeah, um, I got into, uh, I saw a huge growth in my business when a group of doctors and lawyers discovered my classes. And it became, instead of doing a weekend of golf, it became a weekend of shooting. Yeah. And they came to a number of classes repeatedly. And you see the same people showing up, no matter which instructor, travel instructors coming through town, I can count on, I'm going to know probably half to three quarters of the students from previous classes. Right. Uh, I took my first open enrollment class in April of 2014, which was Tom Givens combative pistol. Yeah. In 2016, I saw a picture from an event in Ohio. Now folks, I live in Georgia. Mm -hmm. I saw a, a picture of an event in Ohio and I knew or knew of over half of the people in the picture. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, Tom, Tom's theory is there's about 10,000 people mm -hmm. that support the national private sector firearms training industry at the core of it, particularly the expensive two and three day weekend high round count classes. Those are the serious ones. You know, those people that are really into it, they enjoy the aspect of the group classes. Uh, there's a certain kind of person that wants to be the, they want to go shoot matches and they're going to practice on their own and they're self-motivated to learn and improve. And they like going to big matches. There's other people that like to go to group classes to learn new drills and new things. And also for the social aspect of the classes. And so, you know, different subcultures within the, the mm -hmm. firearms training community, but for sure, there's a lot of familiar faces. Uh, and honestly, for people that are coming up, you know, to be instructors, uh, often that's how you make the connections between, you know, who's going to, who's going to host you and who's going to be hosted and, and uh, all that sort of thing. So there's all that networking that occurs in there as well. Uh, yeah. You know, I, it's no different than I've already mentioned golf, but a bowling league or people that get together and do fishing tournaments on the weekends. Oh yeah. It, it, there's, there's really no difference. And that's that same need of you want to associate with people that have the, the same interests that you do. Yeah. Oh Yeah. And, you know, that's not to say that we're all in lockstep and all agree with each other on everything all the time, because that is absolutely be, not the case. It would be boring if we did. That's right. Um, and so then that next level, you start to look into the self-esteem needs and, you know, finishing that 40-hour class that you started with KR training and getting that coin. Or, you know, I can earn one of handgun combatives belt buckles if I win this drill or i can get oh, yeah. this you know this patch for you know i set the record on this drill or that drill that's oh, yeah. the kind of thing that taps into the self-esteem needs correct absolutely well and, and you know it was in i was on a, a one uh, closed uh, facebook instructor group and and you know someone was like well you've got this reputation that every time you go to a class you know you try to be the top shooter in the class i'm like yeah absolutely i do and I practice before I go to class uh, <laughs> because I want to be motivated to do well, right? I want to get everything I can out of the class. And why don't, you know, why don't I fix all the mistakes I already know I can make and try to get as tuned up as I can be. And then, then I get more out of the 
you know, instructor, if I'm going to train with a world champion shooter, then, you know, I shouldn't take a month off and be off my game. I made that mistake once I went to the Rogers school and instead of practicing for it and preparing for it properly, uh, I just went cold and that was not a good plan. Uh, You know, I missed my advanced rating by two plates. If I had done a little homework, I would have, would have not had a problem making it. Uh, I know one guy that's gone out there multiple, multiple times chasing the perfect score. And uh, after I think four trips out there, he finally managed to, you know, to make that perfect score and join a very elite list of people. Uh, I think six now in history yes. that have ever shot a perfect score out there. And that's, you know, that's a perfect example of being at the top of that pyramid and being very focused and, uh, you know, working toward it. Uh, I just got Ben Steger's new book on shooting training and he breaks it down into four, four levels of motivation. And, you know, the level three motivation is where most of the training regulars come out right? They want to get to, you know, master level in terms of their skill, and they're going to shoot, you know, maybe five to 20,000 rounds a year, and they stay at that level, but they have a life outside of shooting. And then, you know, Ben describes the level four is basically, if you're trying to win the nationals or, or go to that level, you give up everything else, you shoot 50,000 rounds a year, and you, you know, that's all you have going on in your life, because that's what it takes you know, it's Olympian level motivation. And, uh, you know, some people dabble at that level for a while and decide that the, the juice isn't worth the squeeze, that the sacrifices and the other stuff that falls off, uh, the satisfaction from pursuing that, you know, it takes a special person to be that level of motivated to put that level of work in to, to get all the way up the top of the pyramid. And it's a great accomplishment but uh, it's not for everybody and that's you know understanding that from a marketing perspective as a trainer i think is important too right and you know you mentioned roger shooting school and the different ratings there that taps into the esteem needs and the self-actualization needs as well Uh, yeah like i said there's there's people that like certificates and ratings and achievements and all the gold stars and pins and i'm definitely one of those people and as I explained to the people on the instructor forum, I said, I need a shooting goal, right? Otherwise, I have no motivation to go train. You know, it's right now I'm getting ready to go shoot. It's the Area 4 Steel Challenge, and it's a, a regional steel challenge competition. I got asked to give a clinic. I'm like, well, if I'm going to go give a clinic, I probably need to shoot pretty good at the match. So, you know, after a year of not shooting very much, I gritted my teeth and, you know, invested in some ammo and I'm shooting, you know, 500 to 800 rounds a week, which is not a ton, but it's, you know, what I can afford and with money and time and everything. But I mean, I'm probably going to shoot 5,000 rounds getting ready for this match just for this one regional match. But it, it gave me a structure and a reason to go to the range and specific drills to practice and specific goals to achieve. And, uh, you know, as Ben Steger once said, it's one reason he got as good as he got is he really enjoys practicing. You really have to enjoy going to the range and practicing uh, to, to go out and do it. And that's kind of, I'm kind of in that mode. I am enjoying the process of going out to the range and you write down scores and having a plan and running the timer and, okay, how can I do this better? How can I do this better? And at the end of this training for this match, regardless of how I come out in the match, I will have gotten better or at least gotten back to a good level of skill because I had a reason to, to do it. Once the match is over with, I don't have much of a shooting goal happening until the Gabe White class this fall. And so I'm probably going to not shoot much in August. And then I'll start working on uh-huh. trying to get my skills up to win my turbo pin again, motivated by the, you know, the little 
animal pen that he gives out. Why? Because it's there. You know, why not? Well, you know, part of that goes back to the the esteem needs and the actualization ones. You want this sense of accomplishment. But then, you know, this is a community and everybody in the community kind of knows who has what and what people's scores were in events. You know, Rogers has been in existence for over 30 years. Only six people, six people in 30 years have managed to shoot a perfect score on that on that test. Uh, one of them is Rob Latham, who's probably the greatest pistol shooter to ever live. Oh, yeah. The second one is Bill Rogers, who owns the school and probably yep. gets more chances to shoot it than anybody else. Oh, then I you bet had, not. If his life is yeah. like mine. Right. Well, <laughs> over 30 years. That's, shooting yeah. is the last thing you get to do. Well, over 30 years, and he demonstrates the the, the test of every course and everything. So, uh, so every school that runs through, you figure he gets at least one run on, on the test. Yep. All right. Well, yep. then you have Gabe White, who also has a class that has a graduated level of of awards based on how well you do on numerous uh, performance tests. Then you had Manny Bragg, who was USPSA Grandmaster, and uh, trivia. Gabe and Manny did it on the same day in the same class. Gabe oh, wow. was. Gabe was the first person to have done it from concealment. And I just happened to be able to stand there and watch both of them do it. And that was kind of a fun treat. Uh, Number five, it was one of the instructors here at the Georgia Public Safety Training Center named Dave Knight. And then uh, Kirk, I won't say Kirk's last name because I know he has that for his professional reasons has to have some level of anonymity. But that's six people in 30 years that can they have that self-actualization and that esteem of having done that the crazy thing about how small this community is is that rob latham's the only one that i've not met well you gotta fix that right and three of them i have their numbers in my phone and can get them on the phone right now (laughs) if i need to so you know it's just like wow that's a real small community well you look at gabe white you know he awards that turbo pin it's it's dark light and turbo in okay. order of succession, I think only 24 people have earned turbo pins. Yeah. Something yeah. to that effect. Yeah, um, it's, it's a hard, it's, it's, uh, and, uh, uh Jedi, Scott Jedlinski's black belt, mm-hmm. you know, he's only got a handful of people that have earned that. Right. And, uh, I know Brian Hill has some kind of standard. Right. I had sort of avoided setting that kind of standard in, in my program. Um, only because of the, my marketing approach and the, the customer base I'm trying to reach, right. uh, I'm trying to get to a different layer of students, mm-hmm. which uh, doesn't lead to doesn't lead to the sort of following, perhaps that other people have that, right. that if you're only working at the top level. But uh, from a local perspective, I think there's a lot of people between that one percent and the you know twenty five percent or whatever the people that are marginally motivated, they need, they need attainable goals too, uh, because those people, more of those people we can make better, uh, the better prepared they're going to be to defend themselves. They're not ever going to be training junkies. They're not going to take the the level of training, but they, you know, they need, they need structure as well. And I think often the the guys that only are chasing the top tier and the ultra motivated, you know, it's good for their repeat business. It's from a fiscal standpoint, as traveling trainers, I see the appeal as a local guy, I've sort of taken a different right. approach. Uh, I've made the personal decision that I'm no longer going to attend classes that the standards are based on split times. Hmm. Because I, I have just decided I'm not going to participate in anything where every shot's not an individual decision. Yep. 
And really and truly, you can't do that shooting at faster than 0.35 splits. And you're not going to get a turbo pin shooting at 0.35 splits. No. Now, I've got three light pins, and I can shoot a light pin on demand, and I'm okay with that. Yep. Um, you know, but say like Jed Linsky's black belt standards, that's just something that I'm not interested in achieving, but I'm not trying to see how fast I can shoot. Uh, I developed a test specifically based around small carry guns uh, called the, the no loader test because it's a revolver test that doesn't have speed letters in it. And, you know, using a target that I designed, there's two levels, there's pass and there's pass with distinction. And I've already had several big name instructors that have like sent me emails. It's like, man, I'm trying to be able to do this to that past a distinction level. Yeah. And it's just something as simple as that as a, as a pure 100% accountability test versus yeah. a speed oh, yeah. test. Yep. Um, well, interesting. Like I said, I just, just got through reading Ben's latest book and he has a long discussion in there about the difference between predictive and reactive shooting. And it's basically a discussion of when do you, go ahead and fire two shots based on one sight picture or do is there conscious thought occurring between shot number one and shot number two and it right. definitely has a relation to split times yeah. that you know he admits purely from a competitive perspective that at certain targets at certain distances you really are aiming once and shooting twice and using basically your grip strength and your recoil control and your understanding of the timing of how the gun cycles to not necessarily say shoot on rhythm but you're just not seeing very much for the second shot versus shots of greater difficulty that require additional time to see the sights in between so even the competition guys understand there's a difference in terms of decision making and do i do i pull the trigger again even if it's simply confirming the sights before you make that next shot right and and that comes down to a technical technical skills versus application of skill from a defensive standpoint yeah and there, there is a difference now you need to have great technical skills but there's a certain point where chasing you know 0.25 splits just doesn't become very practical yeah from a from a application standpoint yeah oh yeah i agree absolutely That's and why, so like in our shoot house we don't run a timer in the shoot house it's were your hits acceptable and was the outcome acceptable and not how long did it take you because it's we're not interested in the timing of that sort of thing because it's not a pre-programmed stage where you know where everything is it's it's did you execute the process correctly did you did you use cover correctly did you shoot as soon as you had a shot you know that sort of thing so it's a different it's a different set of training programs than pure you know running drills and running through mazes and, and running exercises. And that's one of the great things I think about the training classes is you can kind of look at what your end goals are and you can look at training programs and different instructors and choose your classes based on where you want to be. You know, if, if your goal is to be a master, a grandmaster in USPSA, well, then you pick an instructor that will teach you to go more along those paths. If you're interested more in, I'm, I'm wanting to, be in a competitive environment, but I also want to, my skills are more important for self-protection. Well, then you can look at classes that are rigged around, you know, geared towards more of that mindset. Right. Well, and that's something I'm going to plug my book right now. Just Absolutely. Warning you. 
right there, right? Uh, mm -hmm. This is uh, the book that we wrote, John Dobb and I put this together and it's strategies and standards for de defensive handgun training. One of the sections of the book and that beyond the 1% goes back to the training that people want versus the training that people need. And we referenced, you know, Claude Werner, his great book, The Mistakes, uh, Serious Mistakes Gun Owners Make. And the point I make to students and the reason our COIN program is set up the way it is, um, unlike the majority of all these standards-based turbo pin, you know, Roger School, all that, all those are pure technical skills. Our 40-hour program includes tactics courses, low-light shooting, force-on-force -force scenarios, where it's more than simply, can you run the gun? It's easy uh, to go down the rabbit hole of, I'm just going to get better and better and better at shooting. But if you look at Claude's work and the mistakes that, that gun owners make, rarely is it gun handling or shooting skill that's the problem. It's uh, all communication and decision-making and all the tactics stuff. And a lot of gun owners, particularly those that are new to, into training, their first instinct is, I just want the gun classes, right? I get people that I want to take defensive pistol one, two, and three. Uh -huh. and I want to meet your shooting standards for defensive three. And I have to explain to them, yeah, that's great. You're not going to get your challenge coin just for the live fire stuff. Right. If you don't come for the tactics courses, if you don't learn how to use those skills, if you don't master the communication piece, you don't master the paying attention to other people and the pre-fight indicator piece, then you don't get the challenge coin because it's all part of the whole package. It's not just a shooting skills program. And so that's even, you know, most of the programs that people have, except for like Gunsight does some force on force and shoot house work. Uh, but a lot of the other programs that have, particularly all the weekend traveling trainer type people, it's all pure live fire. It's all pure shooting skills. Um, as you know, I'm one of the few guys that has a traveling force on force roadshow. And uh, I go around the country and we run force on force scenarios. I've got another one of those scheduled for uh, Virginia in September. And, uh, you know, it's a different set of problems. You, there's no pin to earn, right? It's, you're, it's experiment, experiential learning, as Craig Douglas calls it, right? We're going to run you through a whole bunch of scenarios so that you can learn from them and get practice with all of the aspects of the problem, not just drawing your gun and shooting it. And, you know, to me, that's the other thing that often gets neglected in this. I'm chasing, you know, pins and medals that, uh, you can be a grandmaster level shooter and be terrible in force on force scenarios because you don't know how to get out of the problem. You don't know when to walk out of a seven 11 because you're too eager to, well, I want to want to get to the part where I get to shoot somebody with my simunition gun. Well, maybe the scenario that wasn't the right solution, but here you are at the end of it. And now, you know, fake officer Jones is coming to arrest you because you, you know, did something you probably shouldn't have. Uh, I will take a minute here and, and plug Carl's uh, force on force class. Uh, I got to say the best in the private sector that I have seen. Absolutely. Okay, without right doubt, the best in the private sector. Uh, I, you know, wholeheartedly recommend it and suggest it. It, it is, uh, I, I would send my family to it and I can't say any other higher endorsement to that. And the reason that I, I contacted you and brought you in and hosted you to that, that the time that I did was that John Hearn told me he would send his family to it you know, without any reservation. Well, and John's, I gave him that hundred bucks to say that. <laughs> you know, and John's opinion is someone that I trust. And uh, so I was like, you know, I know Carl and I, you know, Carl does good stuff. And I was not, you know, I knew it was going to be good. I was blown away with how good it was done. And it's like, I, I'm not even going to try to do it. I'm just going to refer people to you. And um, 
and hopefully we can get you back here now that the plague is somewhat subsiding yeah well now you have all the the props and everything so we don't have to build new props for next time right that's always the the challenge we'll get into in the next episode here about the hosting and traveling but one reason why fewer people do force on force traveling Mm -hmm. is the amount of equipment that it takes and the amount of logistics that it takes compared to hey i got an open field and we got five target stands we can run a high intensity round count shooting class all right. Uh, in regards to beyond the 1%, is there anything that I didn't ask you about that I should have? Uh, no. I mean, if people are interested, please buy the book. If you go to krtraining.com, you can get a print copy signed by both authors. If you want a digital copy, go to Amazon. And if you want a large print copy, go to Amazon. And there's we now have a large print version that's easier to read with uh, the graphics are bigger. It's a larger format book. So we've been uh, honored that the demand for the book has been high enough to justify, you know, coming around again on the, on the reprints and everything. And uh, there's a lot of interesting stuff in there. If you're a, a micro analyzer of shooting technique, the last third of the book is all about how to take any drill and deconstruct it to figure out how difficult it is and find out what standards are, you know, grandmaster standards and which things are IDPA expert standards and, and all of that. So, I mean, we've got a lot of that kind of cookbook stuff that the, the first part of the book, I think, is the most interesting, which is trying to understand what training do you need and why do you need it? And really identifying what's a realistic minimum level to train to, which, of course, we think our answer is the right answer. But, uh, you know, we explain why our answer is what it is. And you can use our thinking to analyze for yourself what your training needs to be. But yeah, if you're if you're one of those people that only takes live fire classes and your only interest is in I got to get to that sub one second draw from concealment and I got to make you know got to shoot a five second fast drill or whatever that's all good. But if you carry and you're not doing the legal stuff and the medical stuff and the tactic stuff, uh, you may need to you know start expanding out your repertoire. If you haven't done an ECQC course or something like that, you know you want to make sure you keep your your training broad spectrum and don't just don't just be a high speed pistol shooter because you're you know you may find out that's not all the skills that you need right and in his book he has a a course of three seconds or less standards and that's not something that's like super grand mastery you know level of technical skill that's a good baseline of if i can accomplish these things i'm probably fairly competent with a pistol yeah and it's a good way to test yourself and if you want to make it harder well change it to two and a half seconds or less Mm -hmm. right you can change it to 2.2 seconds or less um, I had uh, I had Kirk, one of the Rogers perfect score guys, shoot it. And, you know, for him, two seconds par for every string was challenging. So, right. you know, if you look at it and you go, well, that's all super easy and I can do that in three seconds. Well, crank the par time down and try it again. Right. Or shoot it 100% clean. Yeah. You know, hold Absolutely. yourself, you know, up the standard there. Cold. Yeah. And, I, you know, I've shot it. I shot it in, in a class with you and everything. And I didn't shoot it clean. I passed it. But yeah. I didn't shoot it at 100%. And, uh, you know, those are all challenges that you can do that don't necessarily involve, you know, I've got to be a grandmaster level shooter. Yeah. Yeah. The, the right way to do that test once you, once you pass it once is shoot it clean at the start of your practice. And that's really an assessment of what can I do? What do I have? Well, there you go. All right. Uh, we will end episode one here and we will be back in a few minutes. Uh, to record episode two that will air some point in time after episode one so (laughs) or it'll be on youtube so it'll be whichever order you choose to watch them uh i'm that wings guy this is first person safety